Welcome to the St. Andrew's Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.gosaintandrew.com. We are stepping into one of the best stories in the Bible, the story of Joseph, his colorful coat, and his brothers. Short version, Joseph is his dad's favorite. His brothers are resentful. They sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. He ends up becoming the right hand of the Pharaoh. There's a famine in Canaan. His family comes to Egypt for help. They beg for help from grown-up Joseph, not knowing it's their brother they sold into slavery. The end of the story is Genesis 45, verses 1 through 5. Today's reading is from Genesis chapter 45, verses 1 through 5 from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, send everyone away from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, so dismayed were they at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come closer to me. And they came closer. He said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Over the past few weeks, we've been working our way through the exquisite verses of the peace prayer. It is indeed a cherished prayer known by many that encourages those who recite and embody its words to become instruments of peace, tools to be employed in the work of building God's kingdom, vessels bearing the cargo of God's grace and love to the whole world. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. As we have seen, the prayer goes beyond sentiment and platitudes. The prayer points to something beyond ourselves, a love so powerful that when embodied, transforms the very fabric and reality we humans inhabit. Furthermore, the prayer insists that the value of the instrument we are to become can only be realized when it is properly used, when it is put to work in those areas of life requiring transformation. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. 
where there is darkness, light, where there is sadness, joy. If you want to sow love, you must move into places where there is hatred. If you want to be an instrument that pardons, a tool, sowing seeds of faith, hope, light, and joy, then you need to see and have the courage to face head-on those experiences and regions of life where there is injury, doubt, despair, darkness, and sadness. The prayer is more than an idea. It is a call to action. A tool is useless unless it is used. Like Thomas Edison once wrote, the value of an idea lies in the using of it. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. And maybe we add an instrument to be used. This week, we turn and explore the second to the last line of the prayer. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. In hearing these words, you might have noticed a couple of things. First, if the words sound familiar, that is because they are. Near the beginning of our series, Rev. Mark covered the territory of pardoning, preaching on the text of the prayer, where there is injury, pardon. Rev. Mark reminded us about the extraordinary power to pardon and forgive. Perhaps the repetition and placement of pardoning within the prayer itself reveals to us the importance of understanding how essential forgiveness is to our faith journey and our understanding of God. I can tell you that after four kids, I have found that forgiveness is essential to the survival of our species. In the words of Rev. Mark, we all know through personal experience, often very painful ones, that no family on earth could ever stay together for long without forgiveness. Not a single friendship could ever survive all the blunders and mistakes we're prone to make without forgiveness. Not even the strongest marriage could ever endure the inevitable ups and downs, the arguments and misunderstandings, the slights, the screw-ups, without forgiveness. Turning to the verses we read this morning from the book of Genesis, perhaps we can uncover a few more nuggets of wisdom regarding the act of pardoning and how it transforms our life and the life of those around us. The book of Genesis, the first book in our Bible, whose name in Hebrew is a compound word, be, meaning in, and rashit, meaning beginning, or bereshit, literally meaning in the beginning. A book with numerous voices, Genesis holds many familiar stories, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the story of Lamech, the flood and Noah and the ark, and finally, the patriarchal narratives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Genesis is designed to follow two main parts. Chapters 1 through 11 is the telling of the story of God and the whole world. And in chapters 12 through 50, we follow the story of Abraham and his family and their relationship with God. Throughout the book of Genesis, we find God relentlessly pursuing the reconciliation of a world spinning out of control due to the misguided choices of humankind. One of the most well-known stories of Genesis is that of Joseph. You've probably heard the tale before. According to scripture, Jacob was the father of 12 sons, each of which would go on to be the forebears of the 12 great tribes of Israel. 
Joseph, the second to the youngest son, was special. He could interpret dreams, and he was his father's favorite. Scripture tells us that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. Well, this is where the trouble began. The other brothers did not like this mantle their father placed on the young Joseph one little bit. In fact, we are told when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Things just got worse from there. Fueled by envy, mixed with a serving of bitterness, the brothers deceived Joseph, throwing him into a pit and later selling him into slavery. Covering their tracks, the brothers convinced their father, Jacob, that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. Meanwhile, Joseph is taken and sold to an Egyptian official, Potiphar. After a brief stint in prison and a series of very unfortunate events, Joseph rises to become second in command within Egypt. Finally, driven to Egypt in search of food during a terrible famine, Joseph's brothers find themselves back in front of the brother they believe to be long gone, begging to buy any food they can. With the tables now turned, Joseph has some choices to make. Ultimately, as our reading today reveals, Joseph embraces his family and becomes not only an instrument of peace, but the means by which God's intention for the continuation of life and reconciliation is realized. So what can we learn from this timeless tale as it relates to our line in the peace prayer this morning? It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. First, we see that forgiveness is an indispensable component in the continuation of God's plan for all creation. Furthermore, if we as individuals and as a body want to become instruments of God's peace, we must cultivate a healthy regard for the sacredness of all life and a focus on something beyond ourselves. Throughout Joseph's life, despite every foul turn and circumstance that came his way, he remained sensitive to the values of life, not only physical, but spiritual. In prison, his relationships with the other prisoners reveal that he was generously interested in other people, and never so much obsessed with his own fate and fortune as to lack an awareness of the needs of another. Joseph genuinely wanted to help others as far as he could in their difficulties, and there was no sign, according to the text, that he let feelings of ill will fester when one prisoner was released to freedom and honor while he was left behind. Even when the opportunity came to interpret the dream of Pharaoh, Joseph was oriented toward life in an area larger than his own. He was not reaching for personal recognition of his gifts. It is not me, he said to Pharaoh. God, and note the emphasis on that first word, God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. And the answer that Joseph interpreted, and of which he was later to become the instrument, was possible because the chance to preserve life summoned up his immediate energy and ability.
Beloved, let us reflect here on how important it is to use every opportunity, not predominantly for personal advantage, but in some far-reaching sense to preserve life and cultivate sincere relationships. Which of us, regardless of position or title, does not need the spirit of Joseph as it is expressed in the verses we read this morning? Despite the reasons Joseph had for returning hurt for hurt, his affection for his family is so true that the one thing he is concerned with is to forgive, to pardon, and to restore. What he wanted most to know was simply, does my father yet live? And to the men who wronged him, he did not say, I am the authority imbued with power who can break you. He said, I am Joseph, your brother. Joseph became an instrument of peace, granting pardon and mercy, and in so doing, saw beyond himself and moved God's plan of reconciliation for all life forward. And that is indeed a noble and honorable pursuit. The second lesson we glean from Joseph's story lies in the words of the prayer we are focused on this morning. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. Put simply, when I forgive, something happens to me and something happens to us and the spaces we inhabit. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. Something happens when we forgive. This week I read a report from John Hopkins Medicine discussing the physiological benefits of forgiveness. Studies have found that the act of forgiveness can reap huge rewards for your health, lowering the risk of heart attack, improving cholesterol levels and sleep, and reducing pain, blood pressure, and levels of anxiety, depression, and stress. And research points to an increase in the forgiveness health connection as you age. There is an enormous physical burden to being hurt and disappointed, says Dr. Karen Swartz, director of the Mood Disorders Adult Consultation Clinic at the John Hopkins Hospital. Chronic anger puts you into a fight or flight mode, which results in numerous changes in heart rate, blood pressure, and immune response. Those changes then increase the risk of depression, heart disease, and diabetes, among other conditions. Forgiveness, however, calms stress levels, leading to improved health. Something happens to us when we forgive. When we forgive, we become what we were always intended to be, beings created out of love, made to love. You know, love itself can never be fully defined. Light, for instance, is something more than the sum of its ingredients a glowing, dazzling ether. And love is something more than all of its components, a palpitating, quivering, sensitive, living thing. Love is a thing we cannot make. So we must constantly ask, how are we to realize a transcendent love in our souls? We brace our wills to secure it. We try to copy those who have it. We lay down rules about it. We watch, we pray, but these things alone will not bring love into our nature. Love is 
and effect. And only as we fulfill the right condition can we have the effect produced. When we take actions that make kindness and compassion tangible realities, when we actively forgive others and ourselves, the effect of love is produced within and around us. It isn't pardoning that we are pardoned. Look at it this way. Put a piece of iron in the presence of a magnetized body. And that piece of iron, for a time, becomes magnetized. It is changed with an attractive force in the mere presence of the original force. And as long as the two are left side by side, they are both magnets alike. Remain side by side with him who loved us and gave himself for us, and you too will become a center of power, a permanent attractive force. And like him, you will draw people unto you. Like him, you will be drawn unto others. Something happens to me when I pardon. But look at the grammar of the text. Something happens to us as well. Kindness, charity, forgiveness, they're all like wildflowers. At the outset of spring, we see one or two splashes of color pop up in a field, and they barely catch our attention. But then, almost imperceptibly, one day we look out at the same field, now full of wildflowers, bursting in a sea of diverse colors, and the brilliance takes our breath away. I think that is sort of how it works. When we forgive, when we keep the spirit close and become instruments of Christ-like peace and love, one by one, the spaces we inhabit, our homes, our workplaces, our sanctuaries, all are transformed and become something wonderful, something marvelous magnetic and magnificent. When I pardon, something happens to me and something happens to us. Finally, pardoning is something we must do. Put another way by his master of all awesomeness, Bruce Lee, knowing is not enough, we must apply. Willing is not enough, we must do. We may have a keen understanding of what we need to do. All of you out there are probably nodding your heads in agreement right now. But knowing and doing are two different things. Let me give you an example. Let's say someone is walking up to me in the hallways of our beloved church, sees my name tag and asks, hey, do you know where I can find the chapel? I respond with, why, yes, yes, indeedy, I do know where you can find it. That's it. I walk away. <laughs> A silly example, perhaps, but you see my point. What good is our faith if it does not compel us to action? What impact will our faith have if we fail to act? Jesus told his disciples plainly in the gospel according to John, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. James counsels his siblings in faith, saying, Be doers of the word, 
and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror, for they look at themselves and on going away, immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. Whatever blessings, individual, corporate, physical, or spiritual, derived from forgiveness are realized when we enact forgiveness. When we are children, we learn about things like kindness, compassion, love, and forgiveness. But as we grow older, we come to know that these things are only made real when they are made visible in our choices and behaviors. Our actions bring virtue into being. Now look, I know. I know that it's hard. I'm not naive. Forgiveness is often as simple as it is complex. Rev. Mark reminded us at the beginning of our series that forgiveness in any context, especially in our personal relationships, is complicated. Forgiveness can subvert our natural sense of justice and fairness. Forgiveness inverts our moral sense of right and wrong. It blurs the lines between consequences and compassion. We feel that to forgive, to pardon, is an action that fails to take seriously the pain and suffering caused by evil, as though by granting pardon we are allowing them to get away with something. I think, too, that it is often hard to grant pardon to another because it means in part recognizing that the very acts we forgive in others, we see in ourselves the capacity to commit. There is a beautiful Latin phrase attributed to a freed African Roman slave named Terence that reads, homo sum, humane nili ami alienum puto. I am a human being, it says. Nothing alien, nothing human can be alien to me. I think about that phrase often. Maya Angelou had what I consider the most poetic and intuitive interpretation of its meaning. She reads, I am a human being. Nothing human can be alien to me. If you can internalize at least a portion of that, you will never be able to say of an act, of a criminal act, well, I couldn't do that. No matter how heinous the crime, if a human being did it, you have to say, I have in me all the components that are in her or in him. I intend to use my energies constructively as opposed to destructively. If you can do that about the negative, just think what you can do about the positive. If a human being dreams a great dream, dares to love somebody, if a human being dares to be a Martin Luther King, a Mahatma Gandhi, Mother Teresa or Malcolm X, if a human being dares to be bigger than the condition into which he or she was born, it means so can you so you can try to stretch, stretch, stretch yourself, and so you can internalize. 
homo sum, humane nili ami alienum puto. I am a human being. Nothing human can be alien to me. In the book Visions of Vocation, author Stephen Garber poses a profound, albeit simple, question to his readers. How do we know the world and still love it? The inquiry forms a basis for Garber's thesis, built upon throughout the rest of the book. Existence is fraught with perilous journeys that expose great beauty and unimaginable tragedy. Like Bunyan's pilgrim, stepping outside the gates and venturing into the woods forces us to confront pain and suffering and temptation. Faced with adversity, how will we respond? Indeed, should we even respond? Garber explains that there are certain people in this world who, in the relationships and responsibilities of common life, see themselves as implicated in the way the world is and ought to be. They see themselves as having vocations that call them into life, into the world, into a way of knowing that implicates them for love's sake. In the end, Garber encourages his readers that it remains possible to love the world despite what we see and know. The point of the book is to learn how to see the world with the eyes of the heart, understanding our shortcomings and recognizing our responsibility for the way the world is. Sacramental and incarnational living is all about a world where people sense a calling to see into the messes and horrors and complexities of history and then decide to enter and act for the sake of mercy and justice. Mr. Garber's work presents the reader with a simple yet haunting question. Knowing what you know about yourself and the world, what are you going to do? Joseph had choices. He could have chosen the pathways of defiance and vengeance. Instead, he let the invitation of the generous interest God kindled in him lead him out of what could have been a cramped and corroded self-concern. At 22 years of age, in 1989, after being falsely convicted, Abe Carrington walked into a prison cell that would be his home for the next three decades. Abe had choices to make, not unlike those of Joseph. Would he become bitter, vengeful, full of hate and cynicism? Nope. By the time Abe walked out of the prison after being granted a pardon in February of 2020, he had spent his years behind bars studying everything from Arabic, Spanish, math, physics, and engineering. After seeing the devastation of flooding on TV, Abe invented a flood mitigation system that won him first place at the Defy Colorado competition, a program where inmates pitch and develop plans for new inventions. Today, with the help of investors, that project is off and running as it makes its way into today's marketplace. A week after his release, Arrington also joined Second Chance Center, which works on reintegrating formerly incarcerated individuals into society. In his role as a care manager, 
He provides resources that help individuals transition from prison to a life of prosperity. Abe writes, if I had the chance to live my life again, I wouldn't change anything. I learned a great deal over the years from my experiences, as hard as they have been. I'm not saying I enjoyed all of it, but who enjoys every aspect of their lives? Our takeaways for today. Forgiveness is an indispensable component in the continuation of God's plan for all creation. Forgiveness changes me and it changes us and the spaces that we inhabit. And finally, knowing what you know, what are you going to do? Amen.
doctor's call I'll trust in Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.